quick little recap, just how we got to where we are right now. Israel has been in captivity for about 400 years there in Egypt, and God chooses Moses to be the deliverer of the Hebrew people. Um, Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him to let the children of Israel go into the wilderness for three days uh, to worship the God of the Hebrews, who we have been introduced to as Yahweh. Now, uh, somebody had, uh, actually several of you have asked the question of, Dave, why does it begin with um, God asking Moses to ask Pharaoh to just go three days into the wilderness to worship when he really wants him you know, to take them to the promised land, you know. And, uh, and as I go through the word of God, it seems to me that the Lord is trying to show how unreasonable Pharaoh is. If Pharaoh isn't going to allow for you to go three days into the wilderness to worship him, he certainly isn't going to allow for you to go back to the promised land. Okay. And so... Um, I would submit to you that that is one of the reasons uh, that he starts off. It's kind of like, let's, do, let's just ask for a small favor from Pharaoh. And you're going to be able to see how unreasonable it is. And by asking for this small favor, look what he does. You know, he, um, uh, in spite of what Moses asked, what does he do? He increases the, the burden upon the Israelites. Oh, you want to go three days? You have all this idle time? Then you can also get the straw that it, that, um, in order to make the bricks that we require of you. And that's a binding agent. So now they have to go get the straw where it was delivered to them before. So that increases their workload. And so uh, it, it makes even a harder burden upon them by just asking for those three days. Just want a three-day holiday to be able to go off. Worship the God of the Hebrews, whose name is Yahweh. And he says no. And he says no. So if he says no to that, how he would have responded if he could have said, hey, we all want to leave, you know, in order to go to the promised land. So instead, he's going to make it so difficult for Pharaoh that it, it, in some places it says that Pharaoh released him, get him out of here. The people of Egypt said, let's just get rid of them all together. Yet we know it was the hand of God that led them into the promised land. And so, fair, uh, so Moses at this point is uh, a little upset uh, because he goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh puts a harder burden upon the, uh, the Israelites. The Israelites are now mar- mad at uh, Moses and Aaron. And so Moses goes before the Lord and says, you know, Pharaoh didn't listen to me. The people are mad at me and you haven't done what you said. You have not delivered the people out of the hands of the Egyptians. And so God responds to Moses. We're here in chapter 7, but just kind of go over here to chapter 6, verse 1. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Look, Moses, I had to, um, you know, uh, I had to allow for this to happen first. So you could see how unreasonable Moses is going to be. You need to be able to see how uh, the, the children of Israel themselves have to grow in their faith of knowing who I am. You need to grow. You need to trust me, even though circumstantially things don't look so great. My word is my word, and I'm a God who can deliver. I'm a God who can deliver. Verse 6 of chapter 6 says, Therefore say to the children of Israel. Now he wants them to go back to the children of Israel again. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched hand, uh, outstretched arm, and with great judgments. One of the major themes of the Exodus 
is that he is going to show himself to the Hebrew people as Yahweh. As Yahweh. Verse 7, I will take you as my people, I will be your God, then you shall know that I am Yahweh, Lord, L-O-R-D. All those letters are capital. If you're here for the first time, anytime you see that in the Old Testament where Lord is spelled with all capital letters, it means Yahweh, which is God's personal name. And so this is also a major theme for the Egyptians in chapter 7, verse 5. It says, and the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord, all capital, Yahweh. I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So he's going to show both that he is Yahweh, both to the Egyptians through a series of judgments. But those judgments are actually wonders to the uh, Israelites because that's what enables them to be delivered out of the hands of Egypt. And so, again, he's going to show himself with the same wonders But for one, it's a judgment. The other one, it helps deliver them, which is the Israelites. It's the same today. You can know God as your deliverer. You can know God as your deliverer, the one who delivers you from sin. Or you can know him later on like the Egyptians when judgment comes your way. Either way, the choice is yours. The question is, are you going to be like Israel or Egypt? Jesus himself said that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world but through the world that but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he is not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Paul tells us that we're all under the wrath of God until we come to know God through his Son, Jesus Christ. We're all children of wrath. But the moment you receive Jesus, you're no longer under God's wrath. You become a child of God. Thus, according to Romans 5, 1, you now have peace with God. Peace made through his Son making payment for the sin that is owed God. Jesus did that for us. And so we get to choose. Just like you could choose whether it be Israel or the Egyptians. Pharaoh gets to choose. The Egyptian people can choose if they want to. To receive these judgments by God of knowing that there is a greater God than the God that they worship, and they could submit to him. They choose not to. And to quote from Indiana Jones, they chose poorly. (laughs) So, beginning here in chapter 7, we kind of need to define some terms before we continue here. You'll see this up on the slide here. But in Exodus 3.20, says God speaking to Moses at the burning bush is telling him, he says, So I will stretch out my hand, strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I'll do in the midst that, they, that afterwards they will let you go. So the word wonders, what does that mean? God is going to strike Egypt with his wonders. All right? The word wonders in the Hebrew is palah. And it means extraordinary, marvelous, to separate, to distinguish. 
In other words, God is going to show himself. He's going to distinguish himself, separate himself by doing things that are extraordinary that only he can do in order to distinguish and separate himself from the false gods that can do nothing, can do nothing. These wonders that he does in Egypt is going to show that he is El Shaddai, Almighty God. That's what it's going to show. In uh, Exodus 7, verse 3, it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. So signs are different. There's wonders and there's signs. Well, what is a sign? In the Hebrew, it's ot. It's the Hebrew word ot. It means a sign or a signal. Now, what does a sign or a signal do? A sign or a signal always, always, always tells you something. All the signs that we have up around us here, billboards, whatever it is, they're all there to tell you something. So God, in his extraordinary wonders that he does to distinguish himself, is also going to be doing signs that tells you something about himself. And then we have the word judgments. In Exodus 7, 4, it says, But Pharaoh will not heed you, so that I may lay my hand on Egypt, bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by my great judgments. It also says that in, in Exodus 6, 6. Okay. So God is going to use his wonders, his signs, his judgment. The word judgment here in the Hebrew is shafet, And it means punishment or sentence. So I would submit to you by these definitions that are given here that Yahweh is going to distinguish himself from all other false deities by doing extraordinary wonders that only he can do. A sign that screams, tells you about himself, that he is God and there is no other. These wonders, these signs are also going to be judgments on the Egyptians. Yet these wonders are going to be for the Israelites for deliverance. Before Yahweh brings down the ten plagues on Egypt, let's first ask the question, when are these ten judgments called plagues? As we go through God's word here, They are never once called plagues until chapter 11. It's in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. One more means the other ones were plagues. So they are plagues. But it's not even mentioned as a plague until chapter 11. With one more left, meaning the the, the 10th one there of uh, of the firstborn um, being killed. So, the word plague here in the Hebrew is negah, and it means a blow, it means to strike, it means to be stricken. Now, these ten plagues are considered blows or strikes by God. It's one of the reasons why the Jews traditionally uh, refer to these as the ten strikes against Egypt. Okay, the ten strikes against Egypt. Now, are there ten, or are there eleven, or are there twelve? There are some who think that 
a strike or a judgment against Egypt began with Moses throwing down his staff before Pharaoh and and then his magicians throwing down their staffs and they're all becoming serpents and then but Moses' staff, you know, swallows up the staffs of, of the uh, uh, of the magicians. Some would say, well, that's when that strike begins. So there's 11. And then there's others that would say, and what about the Red Sea? Is that not a fatal blow, a strike against Egypt? I would submit to you that it is. And so some people see 12. And then some people just see 11 because they don't think that first one that I just mentioned about of Moses' staff is really a strike. It's more of a warning. And so are there 10, are there 11, or are there 12? Well, again, don't care if there's 10, 11, or 12. These are major strikes against Egypt for the reason of letting God's people go so they can serve him. So they could serve him. So, but when it does say in chapter 11, verse 1, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt, it seems to declare there that he, that God himself is saying those 10 judgments are those 10 strikes, are those 10 plagues. Granted, he does strike them really hard when they cross the Red Sea, okay? So, but whether you see 11 there, 12, 10, you know, these are judgment, these are plagues that God has brought down upon them in order to let them go. Um, So, a bit of a review here. Go to chapter 7. We're going to go over the first seven verses again, even though we covered them last week. It says in verse 1, So the Lord said to Moses... See, I've made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. So the meaning here, again, um, that uh, a prophet is a mouthpiece for God. God speaks to the prophet. The prophet speaks to the people. Because Moses and Aaron are there in front of Pharaoh, it shows that You know, Moses is speaking to Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh speaks, I'm sorry, Moses is speaking to Aaron, and then Aaron speaks to Pharaoh. And so, like that, Moses is going to be like God to Pharaoh, because it is Aaron that is going to be speaking to him as his mouthpiece. That is what that means. Pharaoh would understand this, because Pharaoh's own custom was to have a spokesman issue all of his commands. This would preserve a sense of distance between himself and his people, thus reminding them of his supposedly divine status. So when Moses spoke to him through his brother Aaron, Pharaoh would recognize that Moses was claiming divine authority. Verse 3, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Doesn't say that he has. That's still future. That's still coming. That doesn't happen until chapter 9, verse 12, after the sixth judgment of boils. Up until their time, there are seven examples of Pharaoh that is hardening his own heart until chapter 9. And we'll get more into that at a later date. Um, Verse 4 says, But Pharaoh will not heed you. So that I may lay my hand on Egypt, bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. Again, great judgments or punishments, sentences that you and your gods have been found guilty in a series of judgments are coming your way. For what reason? Verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalize when i stretch up my hand on egypt and bring out the children of israel from among them once again stretching out god's hand or his arm speaks of his strength 
Once God releases his strength against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, sometimes, again, lessons are best learned slowly. Because we know that God could strike in such a way as it devastates them and they just have to let God's people go immediately. But sometimes things are better learned slowly. This is the reason that God takes his time in bringing out these judgments on Egypt so they will know that he is the Lord. And, uh, and so again, it emphasizes that he is God. There's no other like him. Verse 6, Then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old, Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now I want you to notice something as we've kind of been mentioned along the way. We're going to see Moses grow in his faith and his understanding of God. And he has learned at this point to just listen to God and do it. We notice there's no pushback from Pharaoh, uh, I'm sorry, from Moses at all right here. None whatsoever. Yet up until this point, every time that God has spoken, there's been some pushback by Moses. Oh, I've already done that. He's not going to listen to me. I did what you said. You still haven't delivered your people. I mean, there's always a little lip there with Moses. No lip. It says, and Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, and so they did. And so they did, which is awesome. Now, when we look at these strikes, these judgments uh, against uh, Egypt, we notice that there is a severity in the, in the first nine, a progression of severity of these judgments before the tenth one where you lose your firstborn, okay? When God kills the firstborn male in the household. And so there are many scholars who, who set these judgments in sets uh, of three, okay? So we have here... Uh, these three right here, and then these three right here, and then these three. You'll notice um, the progression and severity. There's blood of the Nile, huge inconvenience of what happens there to their livelihood as well. Frogs are major inconvenience, okay? Because who wants tons of frogs jumping around, you know, your house and everywhere you go? Um, but then again, let's be honest. I'll take that any day over this. Lice, everyone on everyone, on all the animals, everywhere. Um, and then you have flies. These, these are not just flies. This means flying insects. So these are all flying insects that come next. And then after that, the fifth one is now animals are dying. So now there is a plague that's happening here. Okay? And now there's a plague on people because now there's boils everywhere. Okay? And then you have hail that decimates the crops. And then locusts come and finish off all of those crops, and then you're plunged into darkness for three days. And then the firstborn dies. So you can kind of see a progression here of what's going on before you get to that tenth judgment there. Now there's something else interesting about these and why they're grouped into threes here. And it's not so much for you to go down this way as it is for you to go across this way. Because we notice some similarities with the, the first, fourth, and seventh plague, as well as similarities between the second, fifth, and eighth plague, and the third, sixth, and ninth plague. Okay? Um, and what some people have noticed here is that in the first, fourth, and seventh plague, there's a f- slight variations, but when it came to the uh, judgment of blood, the judgment of flies and hail, Moses and Aaron went before Pharaoh in the morning. It's the only three that are mentioned that they go to Pharaoh in the morning. 
Now, when it comes to the second, fifth, and eighth uh, judgment, these all begin with here, um, all begin with the Lord, Yahweh said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, okay? Now, judgments three, six, and nine are very interesting. They all begin with a command to Moses and Aaron without any spoken warning to Pharaoh. They just brought on the judgment. They just brought on the judgment. No speaking to Pharaoh beforehand. Okay? The judgment just comes. The judgment just comes. Now, the first two out of three here, blood and frogs, they're replicated by Pharaoh's court of magicians or sorcerers. But the third one was not. It's at this point right here they said, this is truly the finger of God. Which means that the two that they did previously and replicated did not actually come from their gods or a god. And we're going to look at that here in a moment. Again, going back here to Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 8, as we continue, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod, cast it before Pharaoh, let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. Now, this is the only occasion that Pharaoh asked for a sign. God says, guess what? He's going to ask for a sign. When he asks for a sign, do this. Well, they do this, which means he asked for a sign. He asked for a sign. And this is the only occasion that he does this. This actually makes sense if you're going to represent your God and your God is a creator, then do a sign to show that your God is actually a God. And so that's why he's asking for a sign here. Or a miracle, as we'll see here in a moment. But Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, so the magicians of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Authority is the power to make decisions. And the power to carry them out. Pharaoh is not about to submit to an authority other than his own gods, of a God that he's never heard of before. So show yourself, who is this God? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice, is what he said earlier in chapter 5. And so he's saying, okay, if I'm supposed to obey your God, do something. Show something that you have authority from this God, that this God has any sort of authority at all. Do something. And so the first evidence of God's authority involved a bunch of sticks, okay, Throw down your staff, okay? He, he does. It becomes a serpent, you know? Well, his court, his sorcerers, his magicians does the same thing. But Aaron's staff, stick, eats their sticks, okay? Thus showing something of authority there. The interesting thing is the word swallowed. The word swallowed in the Hebrew is bala. It means to destroy. It means to devour, it's interesting that the beginning of these judgments begins with God devouring their sticks. The next time this word is used is with the Song of Moses in chapter 15 of Exodus when it talks about, at that point, when it talks about 
um, the, uh, the song of Moses describing how the Egyptians were swallowed up by the Red Sea in Exodus 15 verse 12. First it starts out, this whole beginning of all these episodes begin with Moses' staff swallowing up the staffs of his magicians. And it's interesting that this whole ordeal with the Egyptians ends with them being swallowed up in the Red Sea. I find that fascinating. I'm going to give you a little glimpse, a little warning of a swallowing up here. But it's going to end because of your hardness of heart, because of your pride, you're not willing to submit to you, to you being finally swallowed up once and for all. It's fascinating. With this action, God was saying to Pharaoh, my swallowing up, again, of one serpent over your serpents is going to end in you totally being swallowed up. By the time the ten judgments or plagues are over, there will be no doubt when you ask the question, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? You're going to know why you should have obeyed his voice. Now, there's been some confusion and debate concerning the word for serpent here in verses 9, 10, and 12. There there have been those who point out the fact that it's not the same word that um, God uses with Moses when he first shows him his staff to drop it down and it becomes a serpent. In Exodus 4, verse 2, it says, So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it to the ground. So he cast it to the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. The word serpent in Exodus 4.3 is the Hebrew word nahash. And it means snake or serpent. Now, here in Exodus 7, verses 9, 10, and 12, when the word serpent is used, it's a different Hebrew word. It's tanin. And tanin means marine or land monster, dragon, sea monster, serpent, or whale. I got to tell you something. I'm really hoping and voting for that whale is what happened here. <laughs> they threw down the, the, the staff. It became a whale, you know. And it slurped up whatever, you know, uh, reptilian creature the other ones became or, or, or whatever it might be. But because it's there in the, in the uh, area of the Nile and everything else, there are those who say, well, tanin actually means crocodile. Okay, possible. In in, uh, Ezekiel 29, verses 2 and 3, it says, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Prophesy against him, against all Egypt. Speak and say, thus says Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Pharaoh, king of Egypt, O great monster, Tanin, who lies in the midst of its rivers. Well, we're talking about Egypt here. The river. All the little offshoots of the river. The Nile. What's in the middle of it? Crocodiles. Crocodiles are. Okay. Tanin could mean crocodile. Absolutely could. In Deuteronomy 32.33, though, we have this. This is a Hebrew parallelism, using different words to say the same thing. It says, their wine is the poison of serpents, the cruel venom of cobras, thus equating poison with venom and cobras with serpents. Interesting that the word serpent here is the word tanin. But the word cobra here is paten, and it means venomous snake. Hence, cobra. Could be a viper, could be an adder as well, an asp of some sort. But again, it's saying the same thing, but just with different words. So it's equating serpents with cobras. 
okay? Now, okay, Dave, so what is it? I'm more confused than ever. Is it a crocodile? I'm not buying the whale thing. I, I got it, you know. I'm just saying hoping it is. When I go to heaven, I say, hey, play that back for me. I want to kind of see that. I'm just hoping it's something more than a snake. But anyway, um, but I do think God's word interprets God's word. And so we have later on here in chapter 7, as um, Moses is about to do the very first judgment, we are told here in verse 15 of chapter 7, it says, Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him, and the rod which was turned to a serpent, Nakash. That snake you shall take in your hand. So it's saying that same staff that you released yesterday or the day before, whenever that took place, guess what? That was, uh, he uses the other term. He doesn't use tanin, you know. But tanin can be a venomous, venomous snake. And so it kind of leads us to believe it was probably a cobra. You know, they worship the cobra and everything else. And so uh, it's on their staff and on their headdress. And so, uh, so again, it kind of leads us to believe it's more like that. But I'm just hoping it's a whale. I'm just saying. So continuing on here in verse 9, he says this. Pharaoh actually says, when Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, show a miracle. So he's going to speak to him. He says, show us a miracle. Okay, what, what, what does that mean? What, why isn't it called sign? Why isn't it wonder? Why are you now saying the word miracle? Mir- the word miracle is very interesting. It's the Hebrew word, mofeth. And its meaning is a sign as well. Just a different way to say sign or a wonderful display of God's power. And I, I would suggest to you that when it comes to God displaying his miracles, his signs and wonders, it should bring us to a place where we will have mofeth. I'm just saying, for us, it should bring us to that place. But I think what you can do, this word miracles would include wonders and signs, okay? It encapsulates all of that. And when we read about these things, man, it should get us excited, you know, and it should create in us mo faith. So this begs the question here. How did Pharaoh's magicians, his sorcerers, his wise men, how were they able to replicate the same thing? How were they able to do what God did through Moses? And I'm here to tell you something. They did not. They did not. In verse 11, you have the word enchantment. They did the same with their enchantments. Okay. The word enchantment there is the Hebrew lahat. means blaze, flaming, sword, entrapped, Covert, secret, covered up. This was a trick, a sleight of hand. Can Satan create life? No, he cannot. 1 Timothy 6.13 says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things. It doesn't say people. All things that have life, only God can create. Only God can do that. Ephesians 3.8.9, to me who am Less than the least of all the saints, Paul says, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Only God creates life. It is God who gives life to all things. Again, remember the word enchantments. Okay? It's the Hebrew word lahat. It's a trick. 
like pulling something out of a hat. Someone shared that with me for first service. So I can't, can't take that one. I've gone, dang, I hate that I missed that. So, but lahat means blaze, flaming sword, enwrapped, covert, secret, covered up. It's a trick. I have a friend named Dennis Zek who has a ministry called Ministry Through Mystery. And so he does illusions and things like that. And he actually brings us up in his act. And he goes over it and he says, look, there are many things known in the days of Egypt and everything else that you can, um, you can, you can put a snake and actually lay it out and stretch it out in a very, very cool chamber that's cold enough for it to kind of go comatose. And then you can enwrap it, you can wrap it, okay, and, and, and put it in like a, uh, a staff form. And so as you bring it out, it is kind of thawing out in your hands, and then when you kind of like shake your hand like this, it actually flies, flies out, hits the ground, and that kind of stuns it and, and kind of wakens it, you know. But understand what is happening. We're talking an enchantment. What does it say? Blaze, flaming sword. He goes on to say that, um, that, uh, that your other hand produces a flash to get your attention. Exactly what the word enchantment means. A blaze, a flash, sleight of hand. You're distracted by the blaze of fire that is going out over here. And then they throw down the snake. You know, and then when the smoke clears, there's your snake that also. It's a trick. However they did it, it's an illusion. It's a trick. They were magicians. So who were these magicians? Well, 2 Timothy 3.8 tells us. Now, as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds disapprove concerning the faith. But they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all, as theirs also was. How is their folly going to be manifest? Well, they're able to do their trickery for the first two, but on the third one they weren't, and the rest of them they cannot duplicate even with their illusions and their tricks. And that's why in chapter 8, verse 19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God, meaning the first two that they replicated did not come from God. Did not come from God. They're admitting that this was the real deal. Verse 13 of chapter 7, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. He did not heed them as the Lord had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go, even though... A sign was given here, um, even though that, uh, that Moses' sign was greater than the ones that his own magicians can do. He does not receive it. He does not receive it. And so now comes the ten judgments, uh, beginning here with turning the water of the Nile into blood. Verse 15. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. You shall say to him, Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. That's it right there. Let my people go. For what reason? So they may serve me. Dave, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Yeah, you do. You're supposed to serve the Lord. He brought you out of the bondage of sin for this one reason, to serve him. That's your purpose. 
that's your purpose. There's a lot of books written out there about what your purpose is supposed to be and all this kind of stuff. Let me save you $25. It's to serve the living Lord. That's why you're brought out of the bondage to serve him. As great as it is that you are no longer, you know, under the wrath of God, that's awesome. It isn't to where you go, okay, I know, no, Jesus, great, now I could just do whatever I want. No, you've now been created to serve him. Dave, how do I do that? Ask Joey, go to the front desk. You just heard, open up your home for a community group, you know? Do something here within the body of Christ and that that will eventually translate outside the body of Christ. But we first do things inside the body. This is how they will know that you're my disciples, your love for one another. It happens in here. How by serving, using your gifts. Everybody's been given a gift, we're told in 1 Peter. And then in, in Romans, we're told we're supposed to use them. Where? Inside the body. Well, where's the need? Go ask the front desk. You hear it here every week anyway. Hey, we really need help with this. Hey, can you help us with uh, VBS? Can you help us with this? The needs are always there. Just step up and, and put yourself in that place to be used. Watch what God does. And as you faithfully do that, God will open up doors to other things that he wants you to do as well. But yes, there are plenty of needs here within the body. Just ask, you know, ask and serve and watch what God does. Watch what God does. And so he's saying, so that they will serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. So, evident by the first two encounters with Pharaoh, the last encounter with the, with the serpent, uh, nothing is, is penetrating his heart. So verse 17, thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. The Nile to the Egyptians was the source of everything. Without the Nile, there is no Egypt. There is no Egypt. The Nile spoke of life for the Egyptian people. It's the blessing from the gods. However, it was also a reminder to the people of Israel of death in their history. That time period when Pharaoh ushered a decree for all male babies to be cast into the Nile to try and keep their numbers down so they don't outnumber the Egyptians. So what is supposed to be a blessing ended up being a curse to the people of Israel. This is a place of death. You look at it as life, but we look at it in our history as that it's also a place of death. That's where you threw our male babies into. And so now God is going to turn what has been a blessing to Egypt into death in the way that he makes it and turns it into blood. There were about 100 major deities in Egypt, all centered around the Nile River, the land, and the sky. The 10 judgments or plagues or strikes that God is going to send uh, upon them is also an attack on their gods, the multiplicity of gods that they have. In Numbers chapter 33, verse 4, we read, For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had killed among them. So the ten plagues are over. And then it adds this. Also on their gods, the Lord had executed judgments. So these plagues that are coming down, these ten judgments, are also a judgment against their gods that they worship. That they worship. To the Egyptian, life itself revolved around the Nile. 
They owed their very existence to the Nile. They worshipped the great river. During certain seasons of the year, the Nile would overflow its banks, and then when the river would retreat back to its normal flow, it would leave behind deposits of very rich soil, topsoil, that would allow for the growing of abundant crops. The river was their life's blood, the basis for their entire civilization. The Egyptians used the Nile for transportation to move goods from one place to another. It was used as an irrigation system that enabled them to grow crops. It was their water supply, their food supply, because fish came from the river as well, which was part of their diet. At least four major gods were associated with the river Nile. One was Osiris, the god of the Nile, who was depicted as the river running through the bloodstream. Another was Nu, the god of life in the river. And then there was Hapai, the god of the flood. Hapai was also the fertility god who was portrayed as a bearded man with female breasts and a pregnant stomach. There is nothing new under the sun. Then you have the god Num, who was said to be the guardian of the Nile. This first plague God sends upon Pharaoh would have decimated all these gods, would have decimated them, because it would show that the Egyptian god Num, who was supposed to be the guardian of the Nile, could not protect the Nile. It would show that Hapai was said to be the spirit of the Nile, was dealt defeat. Osiris was thought to have had the Nile as the bloodstream now is truly bleeding, and knew the god of life in the river, where the life is now dead in the river. Defeats all four of those gods right there by turning the water into blood there at the Nile. And so it was a blow to the very existence in which they trusted in. And with this blow, God took away their transportation, their water supply, food supply, fish dying, showing again their gods Osiris knew Hapai and Num could not protect them or provide for them. When God told Moses in verse 15, go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water. This is probably because Pharaoh always did this every morning. It was his form of worship that Pharaoh would do every morning to worship the gods of the Nile. Verse 19, chapter 7, continue on. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood, pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the river, in sight of Pharaoh, and in the sight of his servants, and all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood." The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river, so there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. We're told again in the Psalms that this is what happened in Psalm seventy-eight forty-three when he worked his signs in Egypt. Verse 44, turned their rivers into blood and their streams they could not drink. Psalm 105, 29, he turned their waters into blood and killed their fish. You know, we're, I'm going to be bringing up a certain manuscript time and time again, as well as some other evidences outside the Bible that speak of this time period where um, Egypt was struck by these mighty judgments from God. 
And one of them is an Egyptian manuscript called the Ipuwer, uh, uh, okay? And this manuscript is in a Dutch national museum, okay? And it was written, this is a, a copy of the original, but this copy is about 14, 1500 B.C., okay? And it's a copy of the original that states this, that they had a, a person that wrote this down, and so it says here, by their account, the plague is throughout the land, blood is everywhere. The river is blood. Men shrink from tasting human beings and thirst after water. Thus they're saying that it's human blood. This is our water. This is our happiness. What shall we do in respect thereof? All is ruined. Now we're going to have five others from the same manuscript that talk about four or five of the other plagues as well. And so as we go through the other plagues, I'll be reciting from this manuscript as well and how uh, spot on they are of the different plague that they're talking about. Dave, why do they only have four or five? Well, because the manuscript is not complete. These are fragments. These are what we found of the fragments. No doubt it speaks of all ten, but some are missing. Okay. But again, this is an outside source that speaks of something extremely tragic that happened at this time to Egypt. And that's huge. That's absolutely huge. Now, I want to get back to verse 19 where it says something very interesting here. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of wood and pitchers of stone. You'll notice that buckets and pitchers in your Bible is italicized. The reason why it's italicized is because it's not in the original. And because it's not in the original, it should read, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both wood and stone. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because usually when it talks about wood and stone together like that, in God's word, in the Old Testament especially, it is speaking of idols. We see that in Deuteronomy 29, 17. You saw their abominations, their idols, which were among them wood and stone. That's speaking of Egypt. Okay, wood and stone. Idol worship in Egypt began in the morning with each household washing their household idol. And so when they went to do that, what happened? Blood. As they washed with water, it would be blood. Thus, their idols are bleeding. Again, to show that God has struck a blow to their false idols. Starting in verse 22 of chapter 7. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard and he did not heed them as Yahweh had said. Now, how did they replicate that? They did it on a very, very small scale. Because Moses' staff, as it touched the water, already took care of all the main waterways. The Nile and all the other streams and tributary ponds and all those kind of things are now blood. So now what could they touch and turn into blood? You know, a little pot of water that they did some incantation through some, you know, red crystals in there to make it turn red and look like it's blood. It certainly isn't going to even come close to what Moses has just done. But Pharaoh's heart is so hard because his guys can do something similar, not close to, but at least something that kind of resembles it. 
he, his heart is so hard, he will not recognize this most amazing wonder and judgment that has just taken place. The whole Nile. And as we're going to see, it lasted for seven days. And as you know, as a river is moving, going out into the ocean, you know, the coastline had to be red as well. And it's not just a start here and now wind in the ocean and now it's clear again because the water keeps coming. No, it flowed that way for seven days. That is way better than whatever your magicians did. Way better. But his heart is so hard. And Pharaoh turned, went into his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. Wow. That right there shows how hard his heart already is before God even has to harden his heart. And when God does that, as we'll see, the word is strengthened. The word hardened heart means strengthened. It is strengthening Pharaoh to carry out what he already desires to do, is what that means. So, he goes on, it says, So all the Egyptians dug uh, all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. So again, this is an enchantment, it's a secret, it's a trick, it's somehow, you know, uh, they are able to cover up what is really going on to make it look like what Moses did, but it's not even close. Only God can give life. And, uh, and so, again, the plague lasted for seven days. Um, so let me ask you this. Do you require signs and wonders today? I believe that God can do signs and wonders today. I believe God can do whatever he wants to do. I believe he can do miracles today. But do you need that? Or has God given you enough through his word and, and other things? Let me give you a reason I bring this up. Because later on, Paul makes a declaration Romans chapter 1. As a matter of fact, go to Romans chapter 1. We don't have another service after this, so, you know, I'm hanging on to you. So, um, in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says something, Paul says something that is very um, defining in your understanding of who God is and you as a free human agent, okay? That you can choose whether to receive God and what he says or not. But here in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who, so the, the, his wrath is going to be on ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who suppress the truth? Well, the only way you can suppress the truth is if you have the truth. So there's something inside of every unrighteous person, which is all of us, before we come to know Christ. There's something in every unrighteous person that God has awakened that we suppress. And it's called truth. Okay, what is that? He tells us, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. So it's in them. It's been manifest. It's made clearly seen so you can keep suppressing the truth. It's been shown to you how, right here. For God has shown it to them how. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they're without excuse. No one is ever going to be able to go before God and say, I didn't know. That's what that is saying. There's no excuse. That when you see creation, that speaks of a creator. Reason, logic tells you there is a God. You don't just find a laptop in the middle of the room and go, wow, over millions of years, this laptop just kind of came to pass. And wow, I guess it's mine now. 
No, you know that someone of intelligence created that because of the complexity, because of the design. It speaks of a designer. It speaks of a creator. There's a God greater than you. That's what it speaks. Everybody knows this. Now you can suppress that, and that's going to be your own fault. Or you can receive that and go searching for who this God is that created everything. And if you do that, God will continue to reveal himself to you. Now, Romans 3.23. But all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know this. All the way from the very beginning, Adam and Eve. You know what? They blew it. Your sin separated you from God. And so now all of mankind is tainted. And now we can't be in fellowship with God because of our sin. We can't be in right relationship with God because of our sin. That's why Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. That's where they had fellowship with God. That's where they were in right relationship with God. They're not anymore because of their sin. And because of that, every progeny, as it goes down, one descendant after another carries on that sinful condition. I don't really need to make the argument that we're sinners. You know, you got to understand you are flawed. You think the wrong thing. You want to do selfish things. You lie. That shows you you're in a fallen condition. Can I tell you something? Only the Christian faith, as it finds its way back through Judaism, because that's where we came from, okay, is the only faith that explains why mankind is fallen in its nature. No other religion does. And yet, if you were honest with yourself, you would know, yeah, no, I'm flawed. And you should really know if you're married and you ask your spouse. (laughs) Am I flawed in any way? If you have really good friends, and if they really are your friends, they would tell you, you're not perfect. You're flawed. You do wrong things. Why? Because we have sin in us. All have sinned and fall. We're all in the same place. God knows this. We should know this. And God is the only one that can change this. And he does this by sending a son. Guess what? Those first parents, when they, when, when they sinned, what had to happen? Something had to die because God said, look, the day that you eat of this tree of good and evil, which I told you, the knowledge of good and evil, where I told you not to eat, the moment you disobey me, That's sin. The moment you do that, you will die. And did they die in that day? They did spiritually. Kicked out of his presence. So again, we are shown this from the very beginning. We're the only faith that goes back to be able to show why that is. And yet God is saying, and what happened when that took place? Animals had to die. Sin equals death. And what kind of animals? Innocent. They, they, they didn't sin. Something innocent has to die for the guilty in order to cover up that sin. But because mankind's sin, animal sacrifice isn't good enough. It's just temporary. And that always pointed to the future son of God, who's going to be born of the Virgin Mary, And become man, fully God, fully man, living a perfect life to which he died for the sin of mankind upon the cross. Thus, 
making payment of what is due. The wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God paid the penalty for us. It needed to be a perfect man to be that perfect sacrifice to take away the sin of man. All before that, animal sacrifice was pointing to that person who is to come. That is why Isaiah pointed Jesus, said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You have to receive God's sacrifice of his son on the cross in order to make your way back to the Father. This is what life is all about. And this is what is before you today. And you could either be Israel and accept God's way of deliverance or you could be like Egypt who says, like the fool, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. There is a God. He's shown his creation is evident. Okay, you're without excuse. There is a God. And this is what he has done for you. You can either receive it or reject it. I'm giving you an opportunity right now to receive him. Let's pray. 